0: everybody and welcome to san francisco ballet's to the point podcast i'm kate mckinney the pr and communications manager here at san francisco ballet and i'm your host for to the point if anyone's new we're essentially a program note a what you need to know that you can listen to while making dinner walking in your neighborhood or just in advance of putting up our 2021 digital season on a big screen in your home Today we'll be talking about George Balanchine's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which returned to San Francisco on March 6, 2020, after a nearly 35-year hiatus. And yes, you heard that date right, March 6, 2020, otherwise known as the night that the city of San Francisco closed city-owned performance venues due to the coronavirus. We squeezed in one live performance and then were able to capture the production on tape. And we'll be sharing the film of that special production with all of you to kick off this year's season. Known for its stunning dancing, charming story, and ebullient score, this ballet is an audience favorite, and it comes through just as powerfully on film. In fact, both New York City Ballet and Pacific Northwest Ballet have released film versions over the decades. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the ballet, focusing on its creation at New York City Ballet in 1962. Then we'll do a quick overview of the story, and I'll point out some moments and elements to look for, so that in about 15 minutes from now, you'll be more than ready to sit back and enjoy the show and all its details. Sound good? Then let's get to the point. The story of A Midsummer Night's Dream doesn't start here in San Francisco in 2021, or even in 1962 New York, but of course in the United Kingdom around 1595, when William Shakespeare's play was first performed. One of Shakespeare's most popular comedies, this tale of fairies and humans caught in tangles of the magical, mystical, and mundane, has made an enduring impact on artists and audience in its 425 years of history. That said, it wasn't the play's early productions that had the biggest impact on the version you'll see at San Francisco Ballet, but rather a production staged in St. Petersburg at the Mikhailovsky Theater around 1912, when George Balanchine was eight years old. Balanchine appeared as an elf on that big stage, and the play stuck in his head. For the rest of his life, he could recite large portions of the text, and after moving to the United States in 1933, he thought often about what staging a ballet version of the play might look like. He first attempted it in 1943. It was a small-scale production featuring children from the School of American Ballet, including a nine-year-old Jacques d'Amboise, who would later in his career dance in the full-length version. And then later in 1950, Balanchine would choreograph the incidental dances for a production of the play at the Stratford Festival. But Balanchine wanted to do a full-length ballet version, and he finally did in 1962. The barrier up to then had been the music. Felix Mendelssohn's score, which Balanchine loved, was written as incidental music for the play, meaning that altogether it only amounted to under an hour's worth of music. Not enough for an evening-length production. It took Balanchine 20 years to find music to fill out the rest of the action, and even now it's still a short ballet, clocking in at 90 minutes. But once he found the music, he was off to the races, creating a piece that is in its own way the companion piece to his 1944 Nutcracker. It's a ballet in two acts, with many roles for children and remarkable dancing. It's a summer ballet to complement his holiday tradition. To begin, Balanchine streamlined this text, condensing five acts into only two and compressing all of the action into the first. This ballet is replete with interesting and challenging parts for its dancers, with many leading roles, from the human lovers to the fairy court. The original cast was full of starry names, and the premiere came at an interesting moment for New York City Ballet. By 1962, the project that had started in 1934 with the founding of the School of American Ballet was nearing completion. Many of the dancers at New York City Ballet had now been trained primarily at Balanchine School, and their style of dance was different from the older dancers in the company. They were faster and sleeker, sexier even, but more attuned to abstract musicality than narrative drama whereas the older generation was more schooled in traditional ballets and used to playing characters on stage. The opening cast of A Midsummer Night's Dream featured both kinds of dancers. Arthur Mitchell, who played Puck, and Edward Villella, who played Oberon, were both products of the School of American Ballet. But Titania was made on Diana Adams, whose early career was defined by her excellence in dramatic roles by Anthony Tudor at American Ballet Theater, though the part was danced on opening night by Melissa Hayden. The Divertissement Padado de was made on French ballerina Violette Verdi and on Conrad Ludlow, a San Francisco Ballet alum who trained in the school here. Roland Vazquez, the original Bottom, was also a San Francisco Ballet graduate. Suzanne Farrell, who was later celebrated for her performances of Titania and Balanchine's Last Major Muse, was one of the original fairies. She was asked to, quote, watch the role of Titania as it was being created. That's dancer code for not quite, but almost understudying. And of course, she'd learn and perform it in a revival a few years later. Since its first 1962 production, A Midsummer Night's Dream has become one of Balanchine's most enduring works, and certainly the most enduring of his original full lengths. Many great dancers have performed in its featured roles, including our own artistic director and principal choreographer Helgi Thomason, who is celebrated for his performances as Oberon in particular. This part, created on Edward Villella, was one of the last pieces put in place by Balanchine, choreographed only about a week before the premiere. It requires both quicksilver technique and dramatic mime. Villella worked with celebrated teacher Stanley Williams on the part, learning how to project not just movement, but mime and meaning to the farthest reaches of the theater. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's backtrack a little bit and go through the story of this ballet so that you'll know who these characters are that I'm talking about. While I do so, I'll also highlight some key things to look for and to notice, moments of choreographic complexity or compelling characterizations that might help once you see this on your screen. So the ballet opens in a forest outside of Athens on Midsummer Eve. As the curtain opens, we see the first of the 25 children who dance in this production. It's an insect who leaps across the stage to start the ballet. We're quickly introduced to the fairy court. There's Puck, a mischievous sprite, and Oberon and Titania, the king and queen of the fairies. Puck's choreography is high-flying and dynamic, but whimsical and playful, dropping to the ground, creating shapes pulled from nature, insect-like and quirky, as he dances with his companion, the butterfly. He's a creature of the air, buzzing about like a bee or a sunbeam through the forest. Oberon and Titania are a study in contrasts. Titania, striking and regal, enters the stage with a retinue of tall handmaidens. Oberon is smaller, willful, and explosive, and he's flanked by tiny children. Oberon and Titania, though king and queen, never dance together in this ballet. Instead, Titania dances a pas de deux early in the first act with an unnamed cavalier, a pas de deux filled with long stretched lines and sweeping movements. And Oberon has a solo, surrounded by the many child-sized insects in the forest. This solo is devilishly hard, full of virtuoso jumps and turns, but requiring a princely bearing. Perhaps their contrasting natures keep balance in the realm of fairy, but they also cause conflict. This time it's over a small human child, a changeling, stolen from the human realms. When Titania refuses to relinquish custody, Oberon decides to play a trick on her. In parallel, we meet the inhabitants of Athens bottom a weaver and his friends wandering in the forest of this midsummer night alongside the four lovers first up among the lovers is helena she's in love with demetrius she appears crying alone in the woods she plucks a leaf from puck's hand thinking he's a tree unable to see the magic of the forest for what it is and then there's hermia and lysander very much in love and demetrius who also loves hermia we also briefly then meet Theseus, the Duke of Athens, and his fiancée Hippolyta, the Queen of the Amazons, as they consider Hermia and Lysander's request to be married against her father's wishes. Upon their rejection of this request, the lovers run off into the woods, followed by Demetrius and Helena. As if this isn't enough activity already, Oberon, interested both in helping out these young human lovers and in getting back at his queen, has Puck bring him a flower pierced by Cupid's arrow. Why? When touched by this flower, a person falls in love with the first person they lay eyes on. He instructs Puck to make Demetrius love Helena and to play a trick on Titania. But of course, it isn't that simple. First, Puck accidentally anoints Lysander, not Demetrius, causing him to fall in love with Helena. And then, attempting to remedy the mistake, anoints Demetrius as well. Now, instead of both men loving Hermia, they both love Helena, confusing and upsetting the entire group. Meanwhile, Puck separates Bottom from his group and transforms his head into that of a donkey. Yes, he's making an ass out of him. Shakespeare's clever like that. He puts the donkey-headed man near Titania's bower, douses her in flower dew, and when she awakens, well, she falls in love with a donkey. From here, we have one of the most charming pas de deux Balanchine ever created, and certainly the only one he ever made for a donkey. The joke is essentially threefold. First, that Balanchine uses some of the most beautifully romantic music in the ballet for this section, music that seems like it should live with Oberon and Titania, or perhaps two of the lovers, but instead goes to Titania and Bottom. Second, confronted with the magical queen of the fairies, Bottom, who as a man would have been amazed to have such a lovely woman enthralled to him, is interested only in eating grass. Third, the choreography pokes fun at traditional pas de deux, with Bottom kind of glumping around as Titania gets herself in and out of striking supported lines, whether Bottom's helping out or not. When Suzanne Farrell first learned this role, she struggled with this pas de deux, and in a moment of frustration, Balanchine asked her if she didn't have a pet she could cuddle with at home. No, she replied, she didn't have a pet. But the idea stuck with her, and on the way home from rehearsal, she picked up a kitten. Balanchine was apparently charmed by the idea that Farrell would take his advice so literally, and also charmed by the cat, whom Farrell named Bottom. Balanchine loved cats, and he and his wife Tanakia Leclerc even wrote a book about Morca, their dancing feline. The cat, however, was less taken by Balanchine, even once scratching him across the face. Balanchine, of course, claimed it was a razor cut in rehearsal the next day. But in the end of all the action, Oberon shows up to release Titania from the spell, at which point she's embarrassed enough to make up with her husband. As the night drags on, the human lovers eventually wear themselves out with fighting and fall asleep, giving Puck a chance to put all the pairs to rights. Theseus and Hippolyta, accompanied by her hounds, find and wake them, and now that everyone's paired off correctly, they declare it's time for a wedding. So we reach Act 2, What's left? A wedding, of course. A triple wedding, in fact, as Theseus and Abolita, Helena and Demetrius, and Hermia and Lysander all tie the knot. This act is really pure dance, mostly for a series of couples led by an unnamed principal couple. It's an odd choice in some ways, as Balanchine gives the central pas de deux of the second act not to any of the main characters, but to an entirely new couple. Apparently, though, he did once in Europe have the dancer portraying Titania dance this role, but never again. This duet, which is intricate and filigreed, is more challenging than it looks. The whole first section has the man and woman hold hands, creating a sense of balance and proportion. This pas de deux isn't about showing off, or the kind of over-the-top technique shown by Titania and Oberon earlier in the ballet, but instead a kind of careful symmetry that suggests everything that the other couples in the ballet don't have. Decorum, grace, equality, mutuality, respect. Low lifts, which are never above the shoulder, and sweeping movements create a kind of ease and intimacy. A final sweeping backbend suggests a gentle fall into perfect love. After the wedding entertainment ends, we return to the forest, where we see our reconciled king and queen of the fairies. Puck, who brought us into this forest scene, closes out the ballet as he does in the play. If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. So good night unto all, give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. And off he flies into the rafters. And so good night, and that's a wrap on A Midsummer Night's Dream. Thanks for tuning in to To The Point, and meet me right back here for previews of the rest of the season's performances. If you haven't checked out our other podcasts, including recordings of our popular Meet the Artist interviews and Points of View lectures, you should go do that. You can find them on our website or in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts and the Google Play Store. Hit subscribe, and you'll get our episodes downloaded as soon as they're posted. In addition, please do leave us a rating and review in the Apple Store and reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at SFBallet. We'd love to hear from you and your ratings and reviews help us reach new and bigger audiences. Thanks for listening and see you soon on a screen near you.